All right, how's it going, everybody? This is the Conscious Bodybuilding Podcast, episode number 27. Today, we have Dr. Gabrielle Fondero on, and uh, we really just wanted to talk about the the gut microbiome and get into some of the actual more practical things surrounding uh, gut health, because I uh, I have Matthew Bellino on, a returning guest as well and co-host, and and uh, we both kind of have this gripe where we see a lot of like nebulous terms getting thrown around. Uh, we really just wanted to get into the nitty gritty with her of like, what does all this mean? And what can we actually take away from our current understanding of the um, gut microbiome? So thanks, Gabrielle, for coming on. Um, could, could you briefly start by uh, just introducing yourself and how you got interested in this field of study? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was actually sort of a, a series of serendipitous events that brought me here, and I can't uh, claim any credit for having gotten my here myself here on purpose. <laughs> um, but uh, for those who aren't familiar, I'm uh, Gabrielle Fondero, known on Instagram as Vitamin PhD. I have a bachelor's in exercise science and uh, a doctorate technically in human nutrition foods and exercise, but uh, my dissertation project focused on the effects of probiotics during high fat feeding. Um, and uh, the reason that I focused on that was that my actual project, the one that I intended to, to study for you know four plus years, that was on um, uh, high fat feeding and uh, hypertrophy, we, we, we did six months of like solid, um, animal husbandry and it was just seamless, went off without a hitch, collected the tissues. We lost no mice, which is almost unheard of. Um, and then there were some errors in the way that the uh, samples were stored in the fridge. Um, for those of you who, who aren't familiar, there are certain substances you might use in a lab that uh, remove Sharpie very easily. And so we lost uh, the vast majority of our uh, skeletal muscle samples. And so we weren't able to do pretty much, you know, the, the brunt of the project that was intended. And thankfully I had a side project that was supposed to be just a sport of mice um, using a VSL3 probiotic blend um, and uh, to, to determine if there was some protective effects during high fat feeding. And so my PI said, well, I guess this is going to be your main project now because, you know, we're six plus months in and um, it would suck to have to start over again. Um, and I had been kind of curious about that anyway, because one of the models that we were using was um, a model of metabolic endotoxemia. So we would inject mice with something called uh, LPS or lipopolysaccharide, uh, which is um, a sort of, you can think of it like a, um, a, a toxin. It's something that can cause some inflammation in the body. Uh, and it comes from certain uh, microbes in the gut. And so I was wondering why are we, if we know that this is something that could potentially be uh, occurring in, in human beings, um, why aren't we looking sort of at the source? You know, why aren't we looking more to, into the gut microbiome if we know that that's the source of this LPS and maybe we can mitigate it there rather than trying to treat the downstream effects of, you know, insulin resistance. Um, and uh, I had been asking about that for several months and we just, that wasn't our focus in the lab and we didn't have funding for that. Uh, and then when funding became available, then I was able to take that project on. Um, I didn't have any intention to uh, go forward in, in that area of uh, gut microbiome science. I wanted to teach. And so I was hired into an exercise science department uh, and I taught for four years um, until I decided to 
resign and go into self-employment and um, coaching and speaking. And it was actually uh, Mike Isratel's idea to go on to podcasts and, and try to communicate the science, uh, communicate microbiome science um, in a realm that at the time was really just rife with a lot of misinformation and unscrupulous marketing. And so that's how I ended up here. Yeah. Wow. That's a cool story. It kind of like wasn't intended. It kind of just, it, it kind of fell into your lap, so to speak. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. Really cool. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and I wanted to comment on that. I feel like a lot of the marketing like still exists. Like I still feel like I get YouTube ads for like some of these products where it be like a greens powder or like a probiotic supplement talking mm -hmm. about uh, dysbiosis or this or that. And um, it's always so cringy because I'm like watching like a really good like podcast or interview with somebody and then this like ad comes on. Um, so I, I think it's still I think it's still uh, uh, something that exists and, and, and mm -hmm. it is important to have these discussions because, you know, as much like my my idea with even doing this podcast is just to have, um, you know, to to contribute at least in a positive manner, because like, there's so many voices with, with uh, spreading misinformation, like, uh, you know, you could sit around and, and, and talk down about all of the people putting out misinformation, or you could contribute in a meaningful way. And I think that's what I try to do. Um, but so I, I wanted to get some definitions down. So um, if you could talk to us a little bit about what the gut microbiome actually is, uh, first and foremost. Mm hmm. So the gut microbiome uh, essentially refers to all of the microbes and the genetic material that reside in your small and large intestine. So the vast majority are bacteria, and that's what we—that's uh, what people are usually familiar with when when we say microbiome or when we say probiotic. They understand that there are bacteria there. We have other types of organisms there as well. It's actually, um, you know, we have representation from like all domains of life, which I think is really cool because we have archaea in there. Um, we have fungi like yeasts um, and we also have, uh, um, and those are, those are eukaryotic cells, just like we would have in, in the human body. Um, and then we also have uh, viruses that can affect uh, human cells and viruses that can affect bacteria. Uh, those are called bacteriophages. Um, so we have this, um, ecosystem essentially that lives in our intestinal tract. They interact with one another, just like organisms on planet earth that we would see interacting with one another. They, uh, compete for resources, just like the organisms that live on planet earth, uh, that we can see. And, um, they, uh, vie for real estate too. So they're in collaboration uh, and in competition with one another. And so um, it, it's a difficult thing to study and to really parse out causal relationships, because even if we see that, you know, some intervention causes an elevation in a certain uh, group of microbes, we really can't determine whether it was a direct effect of whatever the intervention was, or if it was a downstream effect that resulted from another group of microbes that was potentially interacting with the group of microbes that we studied, but we didn't see the other interaction because we weren't looking for it. Yeah. Wow. It, it is really uh, complex to think about. I don't know why that when you, when you spoke specifically, what's that movie with, um, with uh, Bill Murray and, and I think Chris Rock as well. Oh man. Um, where uh, you guys don't remember that movie um bill murray maybe he, he, he eats an egg and he gets sick and it's like uh it's it's animated oh 
Osmosis Jones. Osmosis Jones. Yeah. That made me think <laughs> Whoa. That when you're talking about competing for resources and stuff, I just thought of that movie right now. That's like a really good, like, I, I mean, I don't know if it's a good um, uh, analogy, but that just made that kind of competing for resources and, and just kind of like having these interactions inside our body. Um, yeah. I don't know how much relation that actually has, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. And it is really complex. Uh, what can we really um, like, I don't want to make this too broad. Like, as far as the gut microbiome, what are some like definitive things we do know as far as like the effects it has uh, on the body? I know that might be broad. And if you want a more narrow um, question, I, I can definitely narrow it down. Well, I would say um, I would, I, I'm very conservative about using the term definitive um, okay. because the field is so young. I mean, really, I want to say, um, I believe it was it was Connie that um, cited that since 2015 or so, uh, maybe or a little bit earlier than that, um, there have been about 50,000 publications. So it there it's been there's been exponential growth in the field, but with that growth comes uh, a, a a number of limitations and a number of of kind of just problems that researchers are aware of. And there have been publications um, of just kind of initiatives, you know, things that need to be addressed, like consistent definitions. You know, when we say dysbiosis, that has like 12 different meanings. Uh, when we um, when we say eubiosis, I mean, we don't really even have an established healthy model um, to which we can compare uh, our microbiomes. Yeah, we do see that there are some patterns where there are some microbes that might be over or under represented in certain diseases versus a healthy person. But we really don't know that those are playing a causal role. And it could be that that's that person's healthiest possible microbiome. It's, it's adapted to the stressors of its environment. And we still don't know whether the microbes are sort of initiating a, a disease process or if the progression of the disease is having an impact on the microbiome. So the best that we can do in terms of coming up with something that's definitive is I think combining um, just the basics of, of microbiology and the mechanistic data that we have from our in vitro and our animal models and compiling that with observational studies that we have, you know, when we're just looking at huge cohorts of people and we're saying like, what are the lifestyle habits that seem to correlate with what we think are good things right now, like having an abundance of butyrate producers. And then from there, we can come up with pretty soft recommendations that are that might change, you know, they're flexible. Um, but we really can't establish cause and effect relationships between the gut microbiome uh, and any outcome, in part because the microbiome is so incredibly complex. And there's a chance that we, we may never establish that. We may never be able to say this whole microbiome all tens of trillions of microbes cause this one specific outcome. I mean, that's just very, it's just not plausible. Yeah. We may be able to eventually start drawing um, causative relationships between certain microbes and certain disease progressions, but that's really a long way out also. Yeah. Well, I think that's really important that you even touched on that uh, because um, like you, like you mentioned earlier, it, it is a still emerging uh, field and um 
there isn't like like you said we can't really say oh because you have this population of bacteria you have this right i, I think one thing that i've seen is that we do see kind of correlations with certain like you mentioned certain disease states mm -hmm. um like if someone has uh tends to be maybe uh have metabolic dysfunction i think i've seen some stuff on that where they have a certain population of certain bacteria could you maybe talk about some of that where we we do observe some of those disease states and and some of the changes to um the populated bacteria and other things in the gut microbiome yeah i love this question and it actually brings up uh, a fairly recent um shift in in like the widely accepted beliefs of in the gut microbiome science community uh, so in the 20 teens, there was the idea that individuals could be broken up into enterotypes. So sort of like somatotypes where like you're an ectomorph or you're an endomorph and, and that's been debunked. The same thing happened with the enterotypes. So back in the day, they thought that if you had a lot of uh, formicutes, we're looking at a very zoomed out view. This is like the phyla level. It's like comparing vertebrates to invertebrates. So you could think like, oh, if you have too many vertebrates, then this thing is gonna happen. So too many formicutes was considered to be obesogenic and, and they were associated with metabolic dysregulation, but uh, bacteroidetes was associated with leanness. Now, the issue here is that when we break down all the different species that are in a phyla is a huge, huge number. And so, and even within, uh, you know, a species, these subspecies or strains can have different behaviors. So E. coli nisile is a specific um, strain of E. coli that is probiotic, whereas other strains of E. coli, you know, we're familiar, cause, cause really severe disease. So even though there, you know, there's a bunch of different, there's a bunch of E. coli, we don't necessarily, we can't say that like, oh, E. coli is a, is a bad bug. Um, so that was the issue back then. So, so they tried to kind of classify people as being, you know, uh, having more formicutes, uh, more uh, bacteroidetes, and I think the other one was like having an abundance of rosbiria, uh, and then tried to correlate, you know, their phenotypes. But over time, they started to realize like, oh, wow, th these are far too general um, classifications, and actually people have a lot of lactobacilli and are not necessarily developing obesity because of that. Um, so I just like to point that out as like something that was fairly recent and people thought like, yes, this makes a lot of sense. There are enterotypes and now we can start saying like, oh, if you have too many formicutes, then this is going to, you know, increase your, your likelihood of developing obesity. And that wasn't the case. Um, and they've done the same thing too, with trying to establish, uh, causal relationships between, I think like Prevotella and Acromancia are two sort of like interesting case studies. Um, where they were looking at different uh, strains of Prevotella and, and it, they were really confused because it seems like sometimes people who have a disease have an abundance of Prevotella species, but then in other cases, people who are really physically active also have an abundance of Prevotella species. And then it's like, oh gosh, well, are these good or bad? And, and so, you know, it really is based on the, the context of the entire um, microbiome. Um, and so that's where we can start thinking about um, instead of just looking at like one microbiome and being like, this is just one big unit that we can start to look at it in terms of its functionality. 
Um, so there is a functional diversity where we can look at the number of different genes that are present in a microbiome because that indicates what it can do and, and what kind of niches it can fill for us. The things that we're not like our our organism can't do, but if we are a supra organism in which, you know, it's us and our microbiome that we're capable of doing more things. So we have that level of diversity. And then we can also just look at the taxonomic diversity, just who's there. Um, and we can evaluate the, the microbiome in that way to say who's there and then like, what is the capacity of this microbiome? Um, and, and realizing that who's there will to some extent influence what they're going to be doing. So for example, potential pathogens are normal inhabitants of the gut. So C. difficile, for example, and like streptococcus, like some of these bugs that could um, cause disease won't because they sense the, um, the, the, their population and they can sense like the population of other microbes through something called quorum sensing. So they're, yeah, so they're kind of getting an idea of like, how many of us are there? How many of these others? And like, what's going on with my host's immune system? And they're not going to exert the energy required to start producing virulence factors unless they are going to be able to like get something out of it because that's metabolically expensive for them. So as long as the relative abundances, the ratios of microbes are in balance, and that's a very subjective <laughs> term that hasn't been yeah. defined yet, yeah. then, then our microbiome will sort of behave. You can think about it like that. Our microbes will behave. Um, but the issue is that we haven't established like what, what the balance is supposed to be, you know, the, the reference ranges, um, you know, so when people are looking at something like a, a, a GI map or like one of those similar, you know, comprehensive stool analysis tests and they see, oh, this reference range. So I'm, I have too much or too little of this microbe. That's not based on any sort of research consensus that is based on the manufacturers of that test having compared your microbiome to a cohort of healthy individuals that may not truly represent um, what would be expected for you. And so you're labeled with dysbiosis or you have too much of one thing and not enough of another. Um, and, and those reference ranges look scientific, but they are um, pretty arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. One thing I want to mention is I, I'll definitely say too, um, it's nice to see that I think a lot of studies, especially recently, a lot of these studies are instead of looking at like the taxonomic abundance and what's there, they're starting to metabolically profile mm -hmm. the metabolome, what what those bugs are doing. And uh, there's there's a recent paper that just showed uh, formate, especially in the infant gut, like there there's cases where um, the taxonomic abundance, even the taxonomy in general is completely different. But the link the linkage to diseases are completely linked to the metabolome what metabolites are being produced by these bugs and it's such a as you said it's so complex it's a huge ecosystem of this you know microbial community that takes into so many factors like the temperature the ph of the gut um you know all these factors and i, I think another common thing is people will get confused when they, when they talk about the microbiome they're specifically referring to the microbiota itself mm -hmm. so then there, there's a huge kind of disconnection where people are like oh the microbiome what's mm -hmm. there versus well what is it doing in terms of like actual community itself you know mm -hmm. so, oh, really yeah. cool stuff but yeah yeah it's that that problem of definitions because they, it happens yeah, in publications mm -hmm. too. And, and saying gut yep. microbiome or gut microbiota when it's actually just the fecal microbiota or microbiota. Right, 
Right. Um, Same thing with the probiotics constantly being redefined. Well, what is a probiotic? What is a prebiotic? You know, um, even dysbiosis. I mean, dysbiosis as a term is just, it, it's almost like what is like the specifics of dysbiosis is totally unclear, you know, un, you know, unbalanced what though, you know, like, yes. so it's another thing. Yeah. Yeah. There is one of my favorite publications. Um, I think it's Olison. I think it was in 2016. Um, and it's titled dysbiosis is not an answer. And he basically mm -hmm. lays it out. He says, dysbiosis is a non-answer. It's a scapegoat that we can use when we don't know what's going on. No. We can say, yeah. Yeah, dysbiosis. Yeah. Right. Something mm -hmm. there's not balanced. We don't know. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. goes yeah. to like the, the problem of like, say a coach client relationship where uh, you label someone having a problem or, or even in marketing where you label someone having a problem. And then here's the fix, right? Here's something I can give you. Here's a pill, mm -hmm. a probiotic or whatever. You have dysbiosis give you some mm -hmm. random probiotic to to uh, right. to give you a certain amount of bacteria that we have no idea like uh i was talking with matthew before this like did did you did your coach do like a fecal sample and then like maths out right sequence here if, able, if they right. were able to would they be able to extrapolate anything practical from that uh mm -hmm. and i would think probably not in most cases um yeah. so yeah i, I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about that um is there is there um like as far as, as probiotics is there any, um, uh, let's say like a, a need for them? Is there a way to assess a need for a probiotic and, and is there utility for, for supplementing with them? Yeah, actually, I, um, you know, I used to be, uh, much more skeptical across the board about supplementation. Um, even having, you know, used probiotics it, it, for my dissertation, like I wasn't a, it wasn't that I was a strong believer, um, in, in their utility, but it does look like there are a handful of probiotics that are useful for specific applications, but their efficacy is really strain specific. And so, um, you, it, it doesn't make sense if you are a healthy person then you have no GI issues and you don't anticipate having any sort of travel or anything crazy coming up to take just a random blend of probiotics like a multivitamin each day. And, and really, and, and even like to the point of about, you know, doing a fecal sample test before and after, it is very likely that after taking probiotics, you will have an enrichment of those probiotic strains in your fecal sample. That does not mean that they have actually enriched or um, taken up residence along your intestinal tract. And also, we don't know whether they actually need to do that for them to exert. So um, just, just so that people understand like the level of uncertainty that we have about how it works and you know, even if they if they need to be alive or not. But um, so, so if you've gone, you know, if you have done the before and after and you're thinking, well, actually, no, I did have more probiotic strains in my fecal sample afterwards. That totally makes sense. If you eat a lot of fermented foods, you'll see the strains from those ferments in your fecal sample. If you eat a lot of bread, you'll see a lot of yeast DNA in your sample. Um, so, so your fecal samples do represent, uh, whatever microbes you might be ingesting, but a fecal sample is significantly different from what we might collect in the more proximal part of your colon, like close to your small intestine or what we collect in the small intestine. And even what we would collect from like scraping the mucus from the inside of your intestinal wall versus getting it from like the lumen, the tube. 
Um, so just so, so the people are aware that, you know, the probiotic research is still in need of standardization and still we still have a lot of unanswered questions. But in terms of what we have seen from interventions where we have a person who has diarrhea and then we give them a probiotic and then we see like how long does it take your diarrhea to clear up versus a person who didn't take this probiotic that there are a few that might be helpful um, in treating um, traveler's diarrhea. So that's when we're traveling and we get um, some kind of bug from you know, a lack of food and water hygiene. Uh, antibiotic, antibiotic associated diarrhea. So that's just how it sounds. It's what we would develop um, while we're taking antibiotics. Um, and, and in a number of other uh, diseases like um, I, IBD, so inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, there might be some assistance with um, uh, preventing C. difficile from coming back after it's been treated. Uh, but, you know, like I said, it's very strain specific. So for example, if we have um, pediatric diarrhea, there's a specific strain, lactobacillus uh, rhamnosus GG, that is effective for pediatric diarrhea, not effective for adult diarrhea. But in adult diarrhea, we see that S. boulardii, which is actually a yeast, is really effective for assisting with adult di diarrhea associated with traveling or, or antibiotics. Um, so yeah, if you're if you're someone tells you like you should be taking a probiotic every day, that's really sort of a nonsense statement of like you know yeah. why and for what. If I'm a healthy person, you know why do I need to be taking a probiotic? Yeah, no, that's really. And cool. it's so funny because uh, I've yeah. noticed that most people people uh, a lot of people do that right where they're like oh gut health i gotta go get my lactobacillus or something you know and they're and they're healthy individuals it's like most likely you have the strain or you know right right and i think a lot of the time they miss the the bigger pillars that they have a little bit more control over right um, right like i always think of something like like making sure you're eating enough fiber and looking at certain foods in your diet first before going straight for the uh the you know the pill or supplement right to kind of mask right you, even if it, if it does it is really cool that they do have some case specific utility though as well. So they do have that. Um, what was that? Well, one thing I wanted to mention when we were on that. Damn, I totally forgot it. Um, well, I guess as far as that goes, um, I really wanted to talk about the utility of uh, fiber in the diet. So mm -hmm. like how important is, is it for us to consume fiber for our, for lack of a better term, gut health and uh, overall health as well. Yeah. Um, if you ask a carnivore person, they'll say not at all. It's not important. It's probably harmful. Probably hurtful. <laughs> fiber? What? Yeah. yeah. We don't need fiber. Um, so, um, I'll, so I'll give a little bit of a working definition of what I am talking about when I say gut health. Um, so I, and I just call this like the three D's of gut health. So we have digestion, um, and that can be both the objective process of digestion. Like, uh, are we lactose intolerant or not? Because if we are, that means that we're not producing the lactase enzyme. And so we can't break down the lactose sugars. And that leads to a subjective experience of feeling bloated and gassy. And so we are kind of like, Ooh, my digestion isn't great. Uh, and then the, the next is uh, disease. So that's either the management of the symptoms of a disease. So inflammatory bowel disease, that means that we're going to be having some ulcerations um, or some like chronic inflammation that's damaging the line of the lining of the intestine. 
or if we have irritable bowel syndrome, then we're going to be, our intestine looks normal, but we have a lot of the um, abdominal discomfort and bowel irregularities. So can we manage the symptoms of that disease? Or can we prevent the development of diseases later in life like colorectal cancer? So we've got digestion, disease, and then the third is diversity. So diversity of the gut microbiome. And I, I say this like very, uh, again, like very conservatively, because we don't know what the right level of diversity is. Uh, there are different ways to assess diversity. So there are kind of different metrics that researchers might use to, to measure the, the diversity of a specific um, population. And there's really, we can't make any guarantees that like if you eat this one specific food or this specific dietary pattern, that it will definitely increase your microbial diversity. And that will definitely be a good thing. Uh, but we can say that there are some correlations between some dietary patterns and changes to the whole community that are, and those changes might be associated with more positive or more negative health outcomes down the line. So for example, you know, when we look at the link between red meat intake and colorectal cancer, that the microbiome probably plays a role in that because if we have a lot of red meat, uh, um, if we're eating a lot of red meat and we're uh, not eating very much fiber, then some of those microbes that can make the switch will switch over to proteolytic fermentation. And when they do that, they start to produce compounds that are carcinogenic. And so there's where, you know, we can say that there's a link there, but again, there's not a cause and effect relationship that's been established as of yet. Um, so that's the gut health. That's, that's the definition of gut health. We've got the digestion, disease, and diversity. Um, and so when we look at um, the effects of fiber, so fiber does play a role in terms of the digestive process. So we have soluble fiber that does not dissolve in water. We can think of like the fruits uh, or the skins of fruits and vegetables. And then we have soluble fiber that if you were to add water to this food that would get mushy. So something like oatmeal. Um, and, and in most cases we see that like food, uh, foods have a combination of both soluble and insoluble fiber. So, so insoluble fiber can help to create bulk in the stool. Um, soluble fiber also can um, contribute to stool mass. Soluble fiber is almost like, um, I don't know, like the opposite of Goldilocks. Like it actually can help whether you're constipated or you have uh, loose bowel movements because it helps to, um, it attracts some of that excess water. Um, soluble fiber is most often also going to be fermentable. So that means that um, fiber, uh, well, all, both kinds of fiber, they bypass our digestive processes. So our uh, digestive enzymes can't break them down. So fiber reaches the large intestine um, and that's where most of our uh, microbiota live. And most of them, especially when we're looking in like the distal large intestine, when we're looking in the colon, they're uh, obligate anaerobes. So they don't, uh, they don't do well around oxygen. And so that means that they're producing their energy anaerobically without oxygen. And they have a heavy reliance on glucose to do that. And so they're getting that from these dietary fibers. Now in the process of fermenting those, those uh, dietary fibers, they could be producing some helpful products. We call these postbiotics. So uh, like a short chain fatty acid, like butyrate. Butyrate is used by intestinal cells as an energy source. And it's also associated with like markers of met metabolic health. So insulin sensitivity and appetite regulation. Uh, we see that people who are really physically active tend to have a lot of butyrate producers in their guts. 
but they can also produce gas and that can make us feel bloated and uncomfortable, especially if we have something like IBS where we're extra sensitive to those um, sensations and we feel like that's kind of painful. Um, so some of these fermentable carbohydrates, uh, yeah, they lead to that gas production. Some of them also attract a lot of water into the intestine. And so they can lead to loose stool and that can be really uncomfortable. So fiber has an effect on our digestive process and it also influences uh, the, the microbiome. Um, and, uh, the, and it probably also serves a, a role in terms of like overall general health if we're thinking about like its ability to um, attract uh, excess cholesterol that we've, that we've ingested and helps us excrete cholesterol. So like it could even help with um, cardiovascular disease. Um, the other uh, potential effects of eating fiber is that um, the microbiome can produce other uh, beneficial postbiotics that might uh, serve a benefit or excuse me, a protective role against colorectal cancer. And quite often when we're eating these high fiber foods, they're from plants and we're also taking in phytochemicals uh, and those can also be metabolized and also uh, result in the production of products that probably protect against colorectal cancer. So when we look at a person who's eating a westernized diet that's really low in fiber, high in refined carbohydrates, sodium, added sugars, saturated fat, red meat, and we compare, compare that to something like the Mediterranean style diet or um, other prudent diets like the um, dietary approaches to stop hypertension, there's actually a pretty sizable um, change in, in colorectal cancer risk later in life, like upwards of about 20% uh, lower risk in people who are eating a more prudent dietary pattern. Um, so ju that's just to say, like, if you're not getting adequate fiber, you know, you may short-term have uncomfortable bowel movements. Um, you may be, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of starving some of those microbes of their preferred energy source. And then later in life, you could potentially be uh, increasing or not reducing your risk of developing colorectal cancer. Yeah, uh, Sonnenberg over at Stanford has a beautiful study. It actually shows too uh, that if you're like not eating enough fiber, or let's say you actually just totally don't eat fiber at all, uh, the microbes have to shift to a different source of energy. And, and what they're doing is they're eating the glycans that are found on the mucus. So what's literally protecting the host epithelium from the microbes, the whole microbiota, mm -hmm. starting to eat at that lining. And eventually now you have all these gut issues where, oh my God, you have inflammation and that's due to these bacteria getting too close to the uh, epithelium. And, you know, it's kind of crazy, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, whoa, it, it's almost like we've adapted. And that, that's like the, muc the mucus that's found in our colon, 80% of it is glycans. So mm -hmm. the source of, you know, carbohydrates for these microbes, uh, it's almost like we adapted and like evolved with uh, these, these microbes and to produce these uh, like glycan structures on the, on the mucus, which is, you know, that could yeah. also be scary. You know, you don't eat your fiber, man. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. There, I think that's actually where um, they found some like conflicting results with acromancia, um, mucinophilia, mm -hmm. because it's a mucin degrader. And so, yeah, yeah, if you're, you know, if you're feeding it enough, it's kind of like, oh, it's great. It's a happy little micro, but if not, right. it's going to be degrading those. Gets uh, a little angry. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 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 I, I will say and, it in, oh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's kind of a follow-up. I'll let you go first, because I think this is a good segue. Uh, oh, after. I was just going to say, uh, observationally, I do notice that 
while a lot of people will talk about some of the issues of high fiber intakes, like going too high in fiber mm -hmm. and being bloated, I've seen people have digestive issues being too low in fiber. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that kind of goes along with what, what you're saying. And it's really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, I, 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 when you were talking about um, high fiber intakes offsetting like the effects of like red meat intake, I think I'm familiar with some of those studies, but um, I, I think that that's really interesting that we also see a shift in certain bacteria when that occurs. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, uh, how that offsets some of the risk potentially of cardiovascular disease, right. Of having that higher fi uh, fiber intake. Yeah. Yeah. That was that classic. Um, but I don't know if you're familiar with like the Turnbaugh study. So he, that lab. Yeah. Peter Turnbaugh. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Jeff so Gordon's lab. That's like yes, a really yep, well-established yep. lab. Yes. The lab so is they, no joke. I know that was the lab. So for people who are not familiar, that was the lab that like first um, used fecal transplants to transfer an obesogenic phenotype from one mouse to another. Yeah. Um, and they've done some of the really groundbreaking studies on the effects of dietary pattern and the microbiome. And they found uh, in humans that if you, if you um, have people eat an all animal product diet, like just meat and cheese, that you see a really significant shift in certain communities, uh, certain certain groups of microbes, certain taxa uh, within 24 hours. Now, one thing that I found that was kind of entertaining is that there were some proponents of the carnivore diet that cited this Turnbaugh study and said, this all animal product diet increased diversity. And, you know, and then the people who ate the vegetarian diet, they didn't see an increase in diversity. And I thought mechanistically, that doesn't make a ton of sense. Let me dive in and let me look at this paper. Well, actually it was beta diversity and beta diversity is a, it's a comparative metric. So it's like how similar or dissimilar is this community from this community? So when we see a high level of beta diversity, it means that there is a big difference or there was a big change from baseline. So that's actually what they saw that the people who ate the all animal diet were significantly different after five, their microbiomes were significantly different after five days of the all meat diet. Whereas the people who were eating the vegan diet, they, their microbiomes remained pretty stable. And what they found is that in the people who are eating that all meat diet, it was sort of these, it, it makes sense mechanistically and it's sort of predictable that there was a reduction in microbes that are really reliant on uh, our dietary fiber, like bifidobacteria. And then there was an increase in those that can engage in proteolytic fermentation, like bacteroides, or those that can um, degrade the, the mucus layer as well. So those mucin degraders. So it's again, just these microbes are just adapting to the environment, like what nutrient is available. Okay, the ones that can live on that will thrive and we'll see their relative abundance increase. And then the relative abundance of the others will decrease because they are dying off. They're not uh, receiving the nutrients that they need. Um, and so it, it wasn't, you know, and not necessarily to say that like, um, a, a beta diversity is, is a bad thing. Like changes aren't necessarily bad, but when we're seeing like, you know, qualitatively, how is it changing? And then what do we know about like the links between these microbes and like their, their, the products that they're creating and, and the link of those products to, to disease outcomes. And we would say, okay, in this case, the changes probably weren't great. And it would be inaccurate to say that like, oh, this all meat diet increased diversity. Um, cause it, it's like, that's the wrong kind of diversity. Right. Did they show the alpha diversity in that study? I figured that alpha diversity was relatively low in, in the carnivore diet. I can't the, remember. Yeah. 
I don't remember if no. they, I'm sure that they probably did look at alpha diversity, but I just can't recall. I just remember like yeah. seeing that beta diversity thing. And I was like, oh my gosh, that this is a total like misrepresentation of what's going on here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. And, it, but it was just sort sort of, sort of funny because it was like, if you didn't dive into it and understand the difference between alpha and beta diversity, it would be like, oh my yeah. gosh, well, you know, right. more diversity. That's a good thing. Right. I feel like a lot of studies too in the gut microbiome are able to manipulate statistics or might not use the best like statistical testing to actually look for, you know, these things, mm -hmm. uh, which could also be, you know, again, that's, it causes a lot of, you know, oh, well, I found this study that says this. And it's like, you got to really look at like the methods and like what they're, how they're statistically testing for these things to, to draw these conclusions, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think you see that a lot with either side of or people who belong to diet tribes a lot of the time is they pick certain um yeah cherry pick mm -hmm. certain studies and, and try to represent or misrepresent the data to kind of yeah. confirm their bias yeah. um one thing i wanted to mention so so i i, I coach uh bodybuilders and and also just people who want to get in shape and stuff like that too um but i, I one thing i see a lot uh, just across the board is is lower fiber intakes um i wanted to talk specifically and this is probably more of a niche uh subgroup but um of, of bodybuilders trying to increase their food volume i think i hear a lot that they have uh trouble getting enough fiber in which you know it, it makes sense right you have having a large volume of food fiber tends to be uh very filling right um so what are some things that you could potentially do to still um get those get some of the fiber intake but also um you know get a, a larger food volume and some other considerations for uh, consuming large volumes of food as well. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and I definitely heard um, kind of both sides that there can be, it can be difficult to get adequate fiber. Um, and then also that there are some people that are eating, um, you know, really high volumes of fibrous foods yeah. uh, because they're trying to like reduce their body fat and then they end up having, you know, severe GI distress or they're yeah, trying to get exactly. more excess, you know, just only from like minimally or unprocessed foods. Yeah. Um, both because the, the yeah. extreme is, 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 you know, getting really lean and eating a ton of fiber. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what's often happening when a person is having GI distress associated with too much fiber is that they're probably taking in a lot of the really fermentable carbohydrates. So we call these FODMAPs. So the effects of FODMAPs are, are they're, are they're dose dependent and they're also sort of dependent on like your personal level of tolerance. So for example, if you produce the lactase enzyme, then you're going to tolerate lactose just fine. Whereas a person who doesn't produce very much of that enzyme, they're going to be lactose intolerant and they're going to have GI distress. There are some FODMAPs that are, are just universally um, uh, malabsorbed because they are uh, absorbed based on um, diffusion, like uh, fructose. And so we don't have a way to just like actively transport it. And so if we already have a lot of fructose that's being processed in the cells, then the rest of it just is going to hang out in the lumen and it's going to attract a lot of water. And then we get a lot of GI distress. Uh, and then there are others for which uh, we don't have the digestive enzymes. And so those are going to reach the colon and they're going to be metabolized by microbes there. And the microbes might produce gas or they might produce short chain fatty acids. And that's probably going to shift based on like the environmental conditions and also the context of the entire set of microbiota. 
Um, so, and that's like not, that's not very well understood. So we can't like have an intervention where we're like, oh, we're just going to shape your microbiome so that like they're only producing short chain fatty acids and you don't get gas. Whoever comes up with that is going to be a bajillionaire. Um, but we don't have that yet. And so, um, we just know, we just understand the mechanisms that these carbohydrates attract water and they're highly fermentable. So they lead to some gas production. Uh, what we don't want to do is go to the extreme and just say like, well, let's stop eating all, all plant-based foods. <laughs> that's, that's probably not the most prudent idea. Um, there are more systematic ways of going about um, removing and then reintroducing and sort of like testing the level of, uh, you know, the, your personal threshold of these different FODMAP groups so that you can determine like, okay, I'm a little bit lactose intolerant and maybe I don't do super well with, um, uh, mannitol. Um, so I have to limit like the number of like the amount of mushrooms and cauliflower that I eat, but, um, like I'm fine with galacto oligosaccharides, so I can eat beans. So determining which of these fibrous foods, uh, you tolerate well and, you know, and maintaining those in your diet. But also, you know, there's, we, we kind of get stuck, I think, thinking like more is better and, you know, eat like, massive amounts of every fruit and vegetable and whole grain and never eat anything refined. And that really does make massing almost impossible. And it can really lead to a lot of GI distress. So, you know, I, um, definitely recommend trying to hit the recommended fiber intake, which is um, about 15 grams per a thousand calories that someone is ingesting. So even if someone is like on a serious massing diet, you know, they're eating like 3000 calories a day, you know, 45 grams of fiber is probably going to be pretty tolerable for most people. Um, but, you know, if you're hitting that and then beyond that, you're feeling really uncomfortable or you've noticed that like, wow, I'm up to maybe 75, hundred grams of fiber per day. And I don't feel that great. Then maybe replacing some of those, um, unprocessed products with something that actually is more processed and lower in fiber, especially around a workout, because there is a mounting evidence that there are a lot of perturbations to the intestinal tract during intense exercise. Uh, and that could lead to some GI distress that could potentially be exacerbated if we have something in the gut that is like super fibrous and attracting a lot of water already. So that would be a good time to switch out and have like your refined carbohydrates pre and post workout, and bring your fiber down a little bit. The other option is to um, have liquid meals. So liquid uh, exits the stomach more quickly than the solid foods, especially, and it's kind of like based on, on the concentration like the osmolality, but um, that can also be uh, an easier way to get down like a high quantity of calories in something that doesn't feel as filling as like a big solid meal. Quickly on concentration, is there an ideal concentration of a liquid if you're ingesting like say, a mixture of carbohydrates and protein. Oh man. I mean, I could, uh, I can remember kind of in like the gram, the gram ratio. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. remember the actual osmolality. I probably would have if I was right. still teaching, but I think it was, um, it was like six to eight grams of carbohydrate per 100 milliliters of water, like a six to 8% concentration of carbohydrate. Um, and I think that the recommendations were something like a, a um, one to four ratio of protein into carbohydrates. Um, so, uh, you know, if take that for what it's worth, don't, yeah. don't quote me no, on that. Awesome. No, no, I know. I think uh, a lot of the time I just have these as baseline numbers for like clients mm -hmm. of like, Hey, make sure yeah. you at least have it diluted in this much fluid 
or you mm -hmm. might ex experience GI distress. Mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously there's going to be an individual response to like, Hey, a little bit more if you're getting, you know, it's, you know, make, you know, getting GI distress or a little bit less if you feel like you're taking down too much fluid. Mm -hmm. Um, a couple of things I wanted to touch on what you said. So that's really cool. Um, one thing is, is like, uh, uh, the, the FODMAPs also certain volumes can also be irritating, irritating, I think too, like a certain volume of, of a certain FODMAP. And one thing mm -hmm. I've seen too is, is I've, I've been a proponent of this for a while. Um, cause I think the first person I saw kind of bring this more popular, popular, more popularity, I guess, in the fitness space was, uh, Stan Efforting and he talked a lot mm -hmm. about FODMAP, but I've also seen him and we interviewed, uh, Damon McCune who helped him design that. And uh, I've seen him, the, both of them talk about how the FODMAP isn't like a sustainable, like you don't stay on the FODMAP diet, you reintroduce foods, and you see how you and, and, I, and I really like how you touched on that you reintroduce foods and you see how you react to them. And, and for myself, like I, I did the same thing where I had digestive issues, went to a low FODMAP, low residue diet, reintroduce foods, and then in certain volumes, like I can have some broccoli when I'm massing and have some of this, like I like Brussels sprouts, I'll have, you know, make sure I just don't eat like a, a pound of them, right? Um, so that's a really important thing I think is, is to pay attention to, to how those foods digest for you, but, but going for, you know, like hitting your fiber target, like hitting your baseline level of nutrients and then introducing some of these more, uh, processed foods is, is usually uh, something I advocate for. Um, mm -hmm. but that's really cool. Is there any other like big pillars someone would need to focus on, um, as far as like uh, ensuring optimal digestive health other than like fiber intake and, and FODMAPs too, I guess. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's definitely, there, there's something to be said about um, stress management. There are, there's some evidence that psychological stress is associated with um, worsening symptoms of gastrointestinal diseases. So um, inflammatory bowel disease and, um, irritable bowel syndrome as well. And there's some really, uh, there are some interesting interventions using gut directed hypnotherapy, uh, and cognitive behavioral therapy in, uh, improving quality of life and reducing, um, like subjective, uh, symptoms, you know, like subjective, like abdominal pain, you know, people say like, oh, my disease doesn't seem to be as severe, even without any changes to the disease markers. So for example, if you were looking at, you know, inflammatory markers and IBD, they're still going to be elevated, but a person perceives the symptoms as having improved. Um, and it's probably a little bit more effective for something like IBS, where there's a strong um, gut brain connection. Um, there uh, was a really interesting study that used uh, either um, double blind placebo or an open label placebo. So that means they had one group that didn't know they were getting a placebo and they had one group that did know that they were getting a placebo. And if even when they knew they were getting a placebo, they felt better afterwards because the person, the doctor said, this is a placebo. Sometimes people feel better when they're taking one. And, um, and so it's sort of like, it's just kind of interesting to think about that, like how, how your mental state can impact um, your, your subjective uh, digestive process. Um, so, you know, as much as we can kind of like stress management. Um, other things would be, you know, if a person does have to take in a really massive amount of calories, it's probably going to be easier for them to eat smaller meals more frequently throughout the day. Um, that can make things a little bit easier because smaller meals also exit the stomach a little bit faster. Um, you know, there, and there have been statements about like chewing your food a specific number of times, or like making sure that you're, 
um, you, you're like back in a, in a sort of like a parasympathetic state post-workout, um, you know, the, you could probably still digest food, even if you haven't chewed it into like a, a super fine paste, you know, there are still mechanical digestion that happens in the stomach. They're still churning. Um, it's, you know, you, there you're going to see like maybe some pieces are going to come out of the end, like the coating of a, of corn. And, and that was going to come out of the other end anyway. Um, but there, there could be something to, um, you know, trying to wait a little bit after your workout so that you, um, uh, maybe not so much for, you know, uh, parasympathetic tone to kick back on, but like, are you trying to stuff your face like right after your workout with a huge meal and you're still like breathing heavily and you're, you're still, um, the, the blood is still shunted away to your skeletal muscle, to the working muscle. And, you know, um, that can actually delay gastric emptying. So it's less so about like ensuring that we're in a parasympathetic state and just kind of looking at like, okay, well, during intense exercise, blood's being shunted away. Um, gastric motility is reduced, gastric emptying time is increased. So food's going to stay in the stomach longer. So give yourself a little bit of time to chill out. And once you feel like, okay, I'm not out of breath anymore. I really feel like I've cooled down all the way. Then you know that, um, you know, your, your digestive process is going to be pretty much back online. And also keeping that in mind too, with like, um, ingesting food while we're, while you're exercising. I mean, that's a reality for endurance athletes that there does have to be some, um, amount of, of sort of gut training. So if a person, you know, is doing an, an intense endurance event, they're going to have to experiment with different types of food. Um, and, and so that's a possibility too. And that's really where like those concentrations will come in, um, and be of, of more importance. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the intra workout for, uh, you know, bodybuilders is, is very limited application. I always say is like, you know, your, your exercise should probably be a certain duration. You should probably be a certain level of advancement. And even then, you know, it, maybe it's just a way to offset some of your calories, but it, if, if that's the, the, you know, most benefit, um, or mm -hmm. if we're being conservative with the benefit it has, um, what was I going to say? Well, one thing I wanted to touch on was that the, um, I guess, back on the fiber subject before we get you out of here um a lot of people will counter the fiber argument with uh, i'm taking a greens powder or i'll get a fiber supplement instead mm -hmm. and um i know that i mean i've heard a lot about it not having the same protective effects but what what could maybe be some of the drawbacks of going that that route first before trying to increase um uh, dietary fiber from foods through some mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, one would certainly be that if we're taking in just one type of fiber, we could potentially be providing a, a, a preferred nutrient for just one or just a limited um, selection of microbes. So we don't yet know which microbes prefer which fiber types, but there is some evidence that, um, you know, if we've been eating a very low fiber diet or, you know, with this intervention, they reduced, um, uh, dietary fiber, um, that the reintroduction of different types of fiber do seem to, um, increase certain groups and not others. So from that, we can say it's probably a good idea to take in a variety of different fiber types from a variety of different foods so that we can uh, maybe reduce some of the competition between microbes, because if there's one group that 
uh, can for so whatever reason like access that more readily than another, then they could outcompete the other group. Uh, not to say that that would necessarily matter, because if we're looking at it from a functional standpoint, you know, that just means like probably another group will have the same function and fill that niche. Um, but it's just something to think about that, like when we're using a fiber supplement, that's just it's it's only going to be psyllium husk or, you know, whatever. Um, and then um, the other issue is, um, you know, that we're we're also missing out on like the other micronutrients and the phytochemicals and whatnot that we would be getting from plants. We're not going to be getting that if we're taking just a fiber supplement. Now we could potentially be getting that from a greens powder. Um, so I, I wrote a piece for um, Barbend on greens powders and like really dove into what are the ingredients usually in greens powders and like what are the um, the outcomes when we're looking at interventions where they've used a greens powder. Unfortunately, there really aren't any interventions that have used a greens powder, but we can look at the ingredients and see like, okay, they usually are using some blend of herbs or, and grasses. Um, they're usually using um, dehydrated uh, plant matter. So it's usually gonna be some like blend of fruits and vegetables. They often will have some digestive enzymes that are added. And sometimes they'll also add a probiotic blend. So we've already talked about the issues with taking just a random assortment of probiotics. Digestive enzymes can be a little bit hit or miss too. So there are some that do seem to reduce um, uh, GI upset after eating certain foods. Um, so like uh, lactase, uh, taking the digestive enzyme lactase, that seems helpful. Um, and then um, I think it's beta-galactosidase, whatever is sold as vino, that might be helpful for maybe about 50% of people. But again, it could be, is it a placebo effect? Um, and then the rest, there's really no evidence for. And if we're taking them uh, in a way that's, that it is not, that they're not protected from our stomach acid, uh, there are a huge number of enzymes that just won't uh, maintain their functionality once they hit the stomach. They're just going to be unraveled and then broken down like any other um, uh, protein. Um, so that's the issue with taking just like a random assortment of digestive enzymes. Um, when we're looking at herbs, those are the most commonly adulterated um, supplements. So that means that they're most likely to have contaminants in them, something like heavy metals. Um, and they're most often associated, they're, they're also very frequently associated with hepatotoxicity. Um, so, you know, if we're like, I'm going to take extra greens powder every single day, like that's not necessarily going to be, you know, super safe. Um, and then finally, when we're looking at the effects of the dried um, fruits and vegetables, there's really only um, a number of studies that have been performed on a one specific brand that uses a bunch of like a blend of dehydrated fruits. So some of the vitamins and uh, minerals in those uh, products are bioavailable. So that means like we eat them and then um, like the concentration of vitamin C in our blood goes up because we've been eating vitamin C. But you could do the same thing with a multivitamin at probably like a much lower cost or with actual fruits and vegetables at a much lower cost. Um, and uh, even when we see things like increased um, uh, uh, antioxidant capacity, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're actually going to have more antioxidant activity or that we even need it. Like if we're healthy people and we're exercising regularly and um, we're metabolically healthy and, you know, we're eating a really varied diet already, 
uh, we, we probably are not in a place where we're like, oh no, I don't have enough, you know, catalase or glutathione peroxidase or something. And like, I really need to take this in a supplement form. Like, no, you probably are controlling your, your free radicals just fine. Yeah. Yeah. That goes into a whole other argument of, of, uh, people trying to lower inflammation with through mm -hmm. ma many mm -hmm. modalities, whether mm -hmm. it's mega dosing, uh, antioxidants or dumping, plunging into a cold tub or whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. Right, cool. well, yeah. uh, I have a question. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask one more just cause I've seen, actually, I just saw recently Peter Turnbaum, I think he's had some, I, I'm not familiar with, uh, the data, but is there a big difference in terms of cooking, um, vegetables and stuff in terms of fiber? Does that actually hydrolyze some of the fiber? Does it, I'm not familiar, but I was curious is, do we see a, a big difference in terms of whether the fiber contents is reduced in vegetables if you cook it or, or pre-treat it or uh, something along those lines? Yeah, I know the research that you're talking about and I know that they did see a difference between raw and cooked, but I don't mm -hmm. recall whether like which one was associated with like greater levels of diversity. Um, yeah. You know, because there, there could be some, um, yeah, there definitely could be some breakdown like ahead of time, but I don't, yeah. I can't recall, but I just like, I can't recall why there was a difference between the raw and the cooked. And I don't recall whether that was in humans. I, I cause I know that there was a rodent yeah, right. to that study. Um, mm -hmm. But um, you know, one thing that, you know, in terms of like being very practical, if you're eating raw um, vegetables and whatnot, that usually takes a little bit longer to eat. And, you know, mm. so, and you expend a, a, a modicum more energy, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, eating like very unprocessed foods versus like the ones that are super cooked down. Um, but actually cooking is one way that you can reduce the FODMAP content of right, foods. Right. Um, so mm -hmm. that would be a little bit of a workaround, you know, if you like really, really like, you know, super boil your broccoli, um, or you get like canned beans because those have been really heavily, um, I, I heavily processed, but you know, in a way like just to cook them and whatnot, yeah. um, and yeah. to like rinse them really well, then you'll reduce some of the FODMAP content as well. So that's one, um, potential workaround to yeah. cook your vegetables really thoroughly. And, and you can yeah. reduce volume, like take up two cups of spinach and yeah. bring it down to something so small. Yeah, like that meme. Like, <laughs> it's yeah, like right. one, one leaf of spinach. It's one leaf of spinach. Yeah. yeah. That's so funny. Uh, yeah, and that's just a great way for uh, to get vegetables in. Like I'll, I'll mash mm -hmm. up some berries. I'll make like a jam out of it. Get some fiber there, um, you know, yeah. whatever it may be. Um, or even uh, I've actually like sometimes I have this uh, food chopper and I'll take like ground beef, rice, veggies, and I'll just mash it all in there. And it's just a way to get mm -hmm. the food more palatable and get some more food in but there's lots of tricks like that yeah, um, cool. yeah. well uh thank you so much for coming on uh where, where can people find you what are the some of the services you offer as well yeah so people can find me um on instagram at vitamin phd and then my website is vitaminphdnutrition.com um, I do provide gut health consultation and education. Uh, I always clarify that I'm not diagnosing anything, but for example, if you're wondering whether you need to take a comprehensive stool analysis test or an IgG food sensitivity test, or you just want to learn more about like what could be going on with your digestive process, then I help folks with that. And then I also provide lifestyle coaching. So I help people establish a relationship with themselves and their food that feels good to them and just helps them flourish. Awesome. Yeah, guys, uh, everybody out there listening, before you down a bunch of digestive enzymes and probiotics, maybe you should consider uh, booking a consult with Gabrielle uh, instead.
Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, let's get out of here. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you.